Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, I think most of these verses will be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, but Genesis chapter 1, and I will pray for us briefly while you turn there. Father, hear our prayers. Uh, We want to know you. We want to know your ways. Uh, We want to understand the gifts you give, uh, and especially tonight, understand sex, uh, so that if it be your will, we might enjoy it in the best possible way. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I'll stop there. When we talk about human beings, everything about human beings... We need to remember that men and women were both made, and one of the primary purposes of men and women is to reflect something about God. So even when we talk about sex, there's something about sex that's supposed to tell us something about what God is like. And that's easy to forget when we think about sex. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, a pretty famous verse. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, and you could add, whether you have sex... Do it all for the glory of God. That's what Paul was trying to say. Everything you do in life, the big things, the small things, the seemingly spiritual things, the seemingly unspiritual things, they're all supposed to be done in a way to honor God. Now, when we talk about sex, especially in the Christian church, uh, there tends to be two different extremes. Uh, One extreme, and this may be more historical, but it still shows up sometimes, is that sex is really gross. Uh, That sex is a bad thing. Sex is a negative thing. Unfortunately, there have been parts of the church throughout the centuries that sometimes have kind of emphasized this. Kind of like, if you want to be a really devoted Christian, you stay celibate, uh, you become a monk or a nun, uh, and even if you do get married, you only have sex every once in a while just for the purpose of procreation. That's an error. It's not taught in the Bible. And where that can bubble up still today in society, if people have had negative sexual experiences in their past, and that might be from a bad dating relationship, that might be some type of abuse or molestation, Very understandably so. They might have warped views of sex. But what we're going to try to do tonight is look at the biblical view. If one ditch on one side of the road is that sex is gross, the ditch on the other side of the road would be sex is God. Now, I don't know anyone who would literally say, I believe sex is God and I bow down and pray to sex. And if I have enough great sex, sex will take me to heaven. I don't know anybody quite that stupid. Maybe that person exists somewhere. But in a smaller degree, let's just be honest, there's lots of people, just turn on the radio, you'll probably hear a song, somebody basically saying, you make me feel like heaven tonight, right? I can take you to the gates of paradise, all that kind of stuff. We're saying practically, functionally, I don't necessarily think this can save my soul, but it feels like it can save my life sometimes. And we emphasize sex way too much. Sex is a great gift. It's a terrible God. And if you try to put pressure on it to do something it was never meant to do, you'll actually ruin the proper enjoyment of it. Okay? Now, so that's kind of all by way of introduction. Again, what we're going to try to do tonight is look at the Bible's view of sex. And what I want to say is, as in many different topics, the Bible's view of sex is actually bigger and better and more beautiful and deeper 
than whatever the world might be saying about it. Okay, let me give an illustration. Imagine, you know, I think it was roughly maybe last year, I don't remember exactly, when uh, the American forces pulled out of Afghanistan and there were all these people that were trying to sneak out of Afghanistan any which way they could. Y'all remember that in the news roughly a year ago? And let's imagine that there were some smugglers, but these are like the nice kind of smugglers, and they're like, hey, we can get you out of Afghanistan if you're some refugee and you feel stuck here, but we only take cash and we only take American cash. We only take $100 bills and we're experts at spotting counterfeits. We only want the real deal. And so let's say you were over there as a missionary and you were trying to help refugees get out of the country. And so you were telling them, listen, you got to have the real legitimate $100 American bill. You can't have a counterfeit. That wouldn't mean that you were narrow. That wouldn't mean that you were arrogant. That would mean you were so committed to loving and helping these refugees, you wanted to make sure they had the real thing, the right thing, so they could get out of the country. You understand what I'm saying? So when we're here talking tonight trying to say, this is what the Bible says about sex. We're not trying to be narrow or arrogant or dogmatic. We're just trying to say, this is the way that the maker of the universe designed this gift to work. And when you understand it the right way and you use it the right way, it's actually a lot more enjoyable and better in the long run. And when you get a counterfeit view, it might look and smell and feel like the real thing for a little while. And it might even be somewhat more enjoyable in the short run. But in the long run, it'll ruin your life. Does that make sense? That's the goal. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the three purposes of sex. Okay? But before I do that, because a lot of times, I've been doing college ministry a long time, and you know I was a college student, and nine times out of ten, there's always at least a handful of people in the room that's like, here's the one question I have, really practically, you know, so I'm skipping to the questions before we even get to the Q&A. What am I allowed to do before I get married, right? Just and that's what I really want to know, right? Because that's what me and my boyfriend or girlfriend keep talking about or whatever. So, listen, the Bible is a gigantic no to all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman for life. Sometimes we try to say, I don't know really if it's really clear what does adultery, fornication really mean. It's, it's uber clear. We don't want it to be clear. We wish it was more grace so we could fool around. But the reality is, it's blatantly clear. Anything, here's, here's kind of my uh, definition, biblically informed. What is sexual sin? It's any way that you seek or receive any kind of sexual pleasure outside of marriage. That can be just making out with your boyfriend and girlfriend. That can be watching stuff online, okay? That can be touching yourself and any other thing I haven't covered, all right? Any way you seek or receive sexual pleasure outside of heterosexual marriage, sinful, period, end of story. Now, here's the good news that I'll get to and I'll explain more. If the Bible is a gigantic no to sex outside of marriage, it's a gigantic yes to sex inside of marriage. All right, so wait, good news is coming. The first point of sex, the first purpose of sex is procreation. I'm not going to spend much time here because I think we all get this. All right, we don't need a biology lesson from me. But it needs to be stated because in our culture sometimes it can be so undermined that one of the main purposes for sex, I didn't say the main and certainly not the only purpose, but one of the main purposes of sex is to make babies, right? And it's best for a child to grow up in a home with a mommy and a daddy that love one another and love that child. And listen, you know that's true. You know it's true. It's written on your soul. Even if you didn't grow up in that, if you grew up in a single parent home or a broken home or a divorced home or an angry home, okay, intuitively you know, I wish it had been different. I even have 
good friends, right, that are very liberal, homosexuals, you know, married to people of the same gender, but they would even agree. Of course it's best for a child to grow up with a mom and a dad. Why? Why is that so? Because you get a fuller picture of what the image of God looks like when you get to see mom and dad and not dad and dad and mom and mom. Okay? So that's, it's a huge privilege to create a new soul, a new life, a new eternal being. But it is a huge responsibility, and we should not take it lightly. That's point one. Okay? Point two, sex is for recreation. Okay? Now, this is sometimes where uh, Christianity can get a bad rap, but it shouldn't get a bad rap because the Bible from the very beginning speaks very plainly. Just flip over to the next page if you're in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, look to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up at its place with flesh. I heard this from somebody else and I love it. You know, guys, we were asleep when women got made. And we woke up and we saw the woman and we liked her a lot, but we were totally confused. And that basically sums up our relationship with women thousands of years later. We like women, but we don't understand women, okay? Uh, But our liking of them trumps the lack of understanding. We were asleep when they got made. Uh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first recorded human words ever spoken and it's either a poem or a song and listen if you'd been hanging out with monkeys and gorillas and you know baboons and porcupines and you know whatever else he'd been doing all day and then all of a sudden it's like there's a naked woman you'd have been singing poetry too right amen all right therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh talking about sex okay but it's talking about more than that but it's not talking about less than that And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, guys, think about what's happening here. Adam was all alone. And we didn't read it, but if you go back up a couple of verses, Adam didn't complain, but God was the one that said, this isn't good. Adam has a relationship with me. He can have a 24-hour long devotional time, but this isn't best. I want him to have a peer. Somebody in one sense just like him, equal to him, but also very different in all the right ways to compliment him. And so, knocked Adam out made a woman, brought them together. This is the very first wedding ceremony. God, in a sense, is the father walking Eve down the aisle to meet Adam, her husband. And guys, notice this. The whole marriage ceremony happens in the nude. And God was there blessing the whole thing. God's the one that made bodies. God's the one that put a bunch of nerve endings in certain places in your bodies. God's not anti-sex. He invented it. He's more pro-sex than you are. He likes it. And everything that goes along with it, flirting, passion, orgasm, and all the other things I could say that would make people start blushing, it was God's idea. He likes it. He's for it. It's super powerful, just like a fire. Fire is beautiful. Fire is warm. Fire is lovely. Fire can give you life and keep you alive with its heat. Fire can cook food. If you take fire out of the fireplace or out of the oven, it can burn your whole house down and kill you. And sex in the same way is almost, almost supernaturally powerful. Almost supernaturally good. But you take it out of the fireplace of marriage and it becomes almost supernaturally destructive. Okay? But it's a good thing God invented it. Every man is a potential husband. 
Every woman is a potential wife. Not everybody in this sinful, fallen, broken world will get married, but you all have the potential for it. And the reality is most of you probably will. And the Bible, when it talks about sex, oftentimes it's a bare-faced rejoicing. It's not queasy. It's not weird. Okay? They, they glue themselves to one another. Uh, flip over to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Proverbs is the book of fearing God, taking God's word serious and all his commands. And listen to what it says in this book of fearing God. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And I skipped verse 18 because I was so excited about verse 19. Okay, Let your fountain, and that oftentimes talks to, about your sexual uh, abilities in the Bible. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So Mary is talking to men. Okay, Young men, get married and stay with the same woman, but then delight in her. And, and literally it has the idea of get drunk with her love. Get lost in her love. It talks about breast, right? Who knew the Bible talked this much about breast? God invented breast. And he's telling husbands, hey husbands, you ought to like this part of your wife's body. Okay. Now, if you think, well, that's a little weird for a campus outreach meeting, just hang on. Flip over a couple of, book, uh, <laughs> couple of books to the right to Song of Solomon. Okay? Song of Solomon, go to chapter 4. And let me just say a couple of things while you're flipping there. Listen, the book of Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible that's all about married, romantic, sexual love. And there's two things the book of Solomon never mentions that might be surprising to you. Right? It's in the Bible. And it's about sexual love. It never mentions kids. So when you have stupid people that tell you, well, you know, Christians don't think that sex is just for uh, making babies, they're wrong. There's a whole book in the Bible about sex, and they don't talk about kids. That's a purpose, not the only purpose. Not even the main purpose. Secondly, the Song of Solomon doesn't even mention God directly. You know what that means? You get married, you want to have sex, you don't have to have a quiet time before it to like sanctify it. It's just a normal good part of life you're supposed to enjoy. Okay? We're going to go to the middle of the book. Okay? To the fun part. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12. Let's start there. Okay? The man speaking of his wife, but he's calling her my sister. That, that level of uh, family relationship, intimacy. A garden lot is my sister, my bride. A spring lot, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruit. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden, this is her speaking now, and eat its choicest fruits. And he speaks again, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And just pause because some people are like, uh, what exactly technically is that talking about? It's talking about the consummation of their marriage and probably all sorts of other fun stuff. All right. Like I said, the Bible is a gigantic no to all sexual activity outside of marriage. It is a gigantic yes to all sexual activity inside of marriage. It's kind of a free-for-all. Now, please hear me. We're going to get to this in just a second. But, but it's got to be consensual. It's not just one demanding of the other. 
That's part of the glory of how it's supposed to work that we're going to look at in just a minute. And this is a total side note, but this might be the most helpful thing for some of you. Maybe the worst thing that our culture has done to us in sexuality. It's not just porn and homosexuality and all the transgender mess that's out there as hard and as bad as that is. It's painful and it's hurtful. It's this. Even if you're the most innocent person in this room, you've never even seen a rated R movie, much less a rated X movie. I mean, you never even kissed another person. Everything in our culture, and even a lot of, uh, in, in the traditional, even so-called Christian culture, screams at us that sex ultimately is about me. And it makes us very selfish. Even if a lot of times we're saving ourselves. We're saving ourselves thinking, I'm saving myself so that when I get married, it can be on and be crazy for me. And I'm so excited. And if you bring all that selfishness into marriage, you have two selfish people, it doesn't work very well. Not that sex is not supposed to be mutually beneficial, but it's the mutual beneficial that makes you have to serve one another and not just serve yourself. Okay? Now, at the very end of chapter 5, verse 1, I stopped reading. Because there's this last little line. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And commentators wrestle with that little part because they're like, well, you got the man speaking, the woman speaking, the man speaking, but then who are this? And sometimes they're like, maybe it's like the bridesmaid standing outside the tent or something, which seems a little weird, right? And, and, and the best understanding is this, that it's God speaking from the dark, speaking to heaven, saying, yes, this is what I made it for. Enjoy it. Drink your fill. Be satisfied. Get drunk with sexual delight, okay? A lot of times, kings in ancient times had these uh, kind of personal gardens, like a pleasure park, and it would have all sorts of vegetation that looked beautiful and smelled beautiful and fruit that tasted good. And in a sense, what the writer of Song of Solomon is doing is saying, my wife's body is like the best pleasure park of all time. I mean, this is John Mayer, 3,000 years, your body is a wonderland way back then, okay? Um, Listen, I'm not going to take time to read it, but a lot of you are probably familiar with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 5, I think are going to be up there. Basically says, listen, when you're married, the man's wife doesn't belong to the man. It actually belongs to the woman. So if she says, I'm in the mood, and he says, I'm not in the mood, he should say, I'll serve my wife anyway. But the woman's body doesn't belong just to her. It belongs to the man. Right? And so there's supposed to be this mutual service that shows up in the sexual desire. Now... When you take it out from where it's supposed to be, it becomes destructive. Let me give you one little story. When I was a kid, I remember, this is a true story. I didn't make it up as an illustration. When I was a kid, I remember one time that there was a, a flood in some other part of the country. And I was a little kid and I was watching TV. And part of what I saw in this flood is like people having to get in boats, you know, to rescue one another, to get out of there. And it was literally like they were going down streets that were flooded in boats. And as a little kid, I was like, that looks awesome. And I started to think, man, I would love to have a flood in my city because then we could get into boats and we could ride around. Right? You don't have to be a genius to realize I was a moron as a kid, right? <laughs> to like want a flood to happen in your city so you could ride down your street in a boat is stupid. But it's because I was immature. I didn't know any better. I didn't realize the destructive power of a flood. And listen, when we hear songs, hear stories, see things on TV of all the glories of sex outside of marriage and think, I'd like to have some of that. We're just as stupid. We're just as immature. We're just as misinformed. It's like inviting a flood into your life. Again, sex in the right context, beautiful, powerful, wonderful. Out of the right context, destructive. Right. Now, 
Um, let me just give you a little science. All right, The brain chemicals that are associated with romance and sex, they wash over our deep limbic system during sexual experience. And they create a cocktail of chemicals in the emotional center of our brain. You've got dopamine. We've heard of this. It's released during sex. It feels good. It brings a sense of peace and pleasure. Right? Um, it's a craving chemical. It makes, I want more of that. In a sense, it addicts you to that experience. Now just pause for a second. You see the danger, guys, in pornography, masturbation, hooking up with random people. Sex was created by God to be addictive. It makes perfect sense in marriage. It makes you addicted to that person. God wants you to be glued to that person. But when you try to throw it around randomly, you get addicted to all kinds of things you don't want to be addicted to. The other chemical is oxytocin. It's released during sexual expression. Skin-to-skin contact, you get little tiny doses. You have an orgasm, you get large doses. The only time you have anything like this is when a mother is breastfeeding her baby. Again, it's about bonding, okay? intimacy. Listen to a few stats. All right, This is somebody commenting on a report by the American Medical Association Council of Scientific Affairs. People who have sex with a multitude of real or imagined partners become self-centered, superficial, soulless, compulsive, and mentally unbalanced. Okay. Uh, here's two sex therapists. Watching porn can be similar to the high you get from cocaine. Well, I mean, that sounds exciting at one level and destructive in the other. People in porn recovery take an average of 18 months to heal from the damage done to their dopamine receptors alone. This is from the New Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. They were studying sexually active young people. And they said, they described their sexual relationships as less than satisfactory as providing little of the emotional closeness they desired. They they described feelings of guilt and haunting concerns that they were using others and being used as sexual objects. The National Survey of Counseling Directors said, sexually active teenage girls are three times more likely to be depressed and nearly three times as likely to attempt suicide as young women who aren't sexually active. How about the guys? Guys, you can go and, and search for TED Talks. Okay, I've done it before. And you can easily find non-Christians, blatant non-Christians, who are passionately against pornography. And the two main reasons are this. It makes it virtually impossible for them to perform sexually with a real woman. And even when they're able to, they notice that it makes them more violent towards real women. They're not preaching the Bible. They're just preaching reality because the Bible and reality always line up. It seems innocent enough. It's not. It's destructive. Okay? Um, this was some extensive study on sexuality and gender. It said sexually reassigned individuals are about 19 times more likely to commit suicide it's after the surgery. I mean, that, that's a lot of the argument why we should have all this transgender stuff. Is like, well, because they're tempted to suicide, it actually gets worse. Dr. McHugh, he used to be the chairman of psychiatry at John Hopkins University. Okay, kind of a big deal. He quit doing sexual reassignment surgeries because he became convinced that it actually harmed people more than it helped them. So here's the bottom line. Great commentator said this named Derek Kidner. He said, we think that beyond God's boundaries is ecstasy, right? If I could do something just a little scandalous, it would be like the greatest night of my life. Actually, you know what happens beyond God's boundaries? nausea it will ruin your life guys okay listen this is why some of you guys maybe you go to a party you drink a little too much you hook up with some random girl you feel terrible but the next day you still feel like you owe her a call 
You're like, I kind of never want to see that girl again, but I also kind of feel obligated because that's the way design works. That's why probably all of us at some point have known a girl who's in a sexual relationship with a guy who's also abusive, and like everybody that knows her is telling her, get out. But at some level, it's like she can't. She feels addicted to the guy. This stuff works beautifully in marriage, and it works as disaster outside of marriage. Okay. Procreation, recreation, the third and the most important part of sexuality is unification. The two become one. Married people are supposed to become like one person, not just physically, but in every way, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, and and sex is like a parable showing that. But I want you to go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll end here. Ephesians chapter 5, which is probably the greatest teaching on marriage. And it's talking about women respecting their husbands. It's talking about husbands serving and loving their wives. It's very practical advice. And then we're just going to pick up at the very end of the chapter and notice what happens. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, quotes that. But then look at what he's going to say. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's something about sex, and specifically married sex, that's supposed to be a picture of the way Jesus loves the church. God saves people. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of that, and even more specifically, sex is supposed to be a picture of that. And you're like, how in the world is that supposed to work? Okay? I'm going to explain it to you. All right, but before I say that, let me just say this. I mean, th- think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife. The Lord Jesus left heaven, left his father's throne above to come down and take a bride unto himself. Total side note, but it's important. The main problem with homosexuality, guys, is this it preaches a false gospel. Heterosexual marriage and sex is supposed to preach a gospel of two things that are similar but very different coming together. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, came to save sinners who aren't divine at all but are fully men. He's perfectly holy. We're sinful. They come together. That's what's supposed to happen in marriage. That's supposed to what's happened in sex. Okay. Listen, let me say this, guys. We're all sexually broken. I'm sexually broken. I've been married for almost 24 years. I'm still sexually broken. It's not like I got it all figured out. It's a struggle. Again, whoever the most innocent person in here that I was talking to earlier, and you've never even seen a PG-13 movie, you're sexually broken. We all have sexual brokenness. So this is not about, the main point tonight is this, guys, is not I want to be perfectly sexually pure. That's a secondary point. The more sexually pure you can be, the better. Because it will bring more honor to God. It will be more blessing to you. It will be more of a blessing to the culture. But the main point tonight in talking about sex is exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 5. is to understand something deeper about the gospel. And think about what happens in sex. You take your clothes off. Okay? There's nothing to hide behind. And what, what, do, you, what do we really want in sex? I want somebody to see me, warts and all, right? Down deep. And say, I love you. I fully accept you. I delight in you. I'll take all of you, not just parts of you, your whole body and your whole life. 
Think about what happened in the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ sees us in all our sinful, naked shame. All the wars, all the sin, all the baggage, all the impurity. He says, I see you at your worst. I still love you. I still delight in you. I want all of you. And I'm willing to sacrifice to get you. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he had no sin. But he was literally stripped naked, hung before all the world to see. And he had our shame dumped on him. He made himself weak. He made himself vulnerable, taking the wrath of the Father. So that he could forgive all of our sins, sexual and otherwise. Wash us clean, change us, grow us up, make us into the people that we want to be. So guys... The more that we can think in a biblical and a gospel and a Christ-centered way about sex, it'll bring more joy in the long run. It'll bring more health. It'll bring more happiness. Most importantly, it'll bring more honor to God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. A lot of times we feel like we can't live without sex. The reality is we can live without sex. We can't live without a Savior. Thank you for being that glorious Savior. Would you draw all of us closer to you? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.